Open your Bibles to Revelation 14. This is another vision of Christ. And I'll read verses 1 through 5. John says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. That will be a day, won't it? And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. The Greek has harp. Uh, harpists harping their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and for the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Obviously, there are some things that raise our uh, questioning hearts here in this passage. But notice, the Lamb will stand on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 Jewish uh, co-workers and associates and they are his true and undivided followers and they come out of the tribulation okay so here's an end time schematic let's go uh, let's just kind of sum up our talk about the millennium the essentials of the teachings of the scriptures on the millennium by Culver, at least, he, he sees three uh, propositions. The first, the inauguration of the millennium will follow the closing days of the present age. So if we think about the church age and moving into the tribulation period, that, that is uh, this age. So uh, the inauguration of the millennium will follow this age. The Antichrist will be destroyed by Christ at his second coming Israel will be delivered. Secondly, the millennium is specifically the period of time between the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust. Turn to Revelation 20. We will no doubt uh, read this passage a number of times. (coughs) Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. Now this is after Christ returns and decimates the armies of the Antichrist and of the world um, uh, generals that joined the Antichrist. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. 
After that, he must be released a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those whom, uh, to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So Culver refers to that period of time, the millennium, between the first resurrection and the second resurrection. And then point three here, the millennium is the initial stage of the everlasting kingdom of Christ, which begins with Christ's return to glory to judge and rule the nations. The saints of the first resurrection will reign with him for 1,000 years. Okay, let me talk to you a little bit about the testimony of Jesus. I was privileged to study it at Dallas Theological Seminary, 2010 to 2016. And in the course of my study there, there they want you to declare a dissertation topic early on, almost as soon as uh, even the first semester. And so I was thinking through, okay, what, Lord, should I write write on? What should I research and write on? And I was thinking through the scriptures and thinking of the theme, you know, what might be the general theme of the scriptures. I looked at some books and so forth. And then the Lord brought to my attention Revelation 19.10. So just turn back a chapter, and we have an interaction between the angel and John. Uh, Look at verse 19.9. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Okay, so I'm going to talk to you about that that phrase uh, over the next few slides. In the outworking of God's plan to recover his created world from the fallout of angelic defection and human sin, Abram and his line through Isaac were chosen to serve as a mediating nation of God's blessing and cursing to the other nations. The scriptures record Israel's minimal success in this role. And finally, Israel's complete failure to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. Those words come out of Exodus 19, but we could look at Jeremiah and see the same concept. That Jeremiah references that same calling for this nation, for these these chosen people. The Lord often bore witness to himself to correct the failed testimony of Israel, and, and he says so in the prophets. You guys didn't represent me well, I'm going to have to do this for my own name's sake. (coughs) The prophetic scriptures predict things regarding Israel, the nations, and the Messiah. 
And these scriptures detail promises to Israel, yet also warn of disciplinary actions should Israel break covenant with the Lord. He also holds the nations accountable for their relation to himself, to Israel, and for the way they treat one another. Look at the book of Amos. And Amos starts off his first two chapters. You know, uh, thus says the Lord, for, for three things, yea, for four, the Lord will not withhold his judgment. And then he cites a number of nations that come under God's wrath. Knowing Israel would fail, God narrowed his scope. Now watch this. He narrows his scope to one person. From Abraham and his descendants, he narrows the scope. He authors prophecies regarding a descendant of Eve, Abram, Shem, and Judah. So as we look at Messianic prophecy in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Genesis, we see uh, we see a narrowing of of God's identification of the person who would be the Messiah. He starts off with Abraham, moves to Shem, moves to Judah. Well, actually starts with Eve. And then uh, we have this uh, suffering servant, um, son of David, uh, through the prophet Isaiah. And this servant would address his people's failure redemptively. Suffering servant of Isaiah 42, 49, 50, 50 to 53. And he would provide reconciliation to God for the nations through a righteous and royal throne. These messianic prophecies may be termed the testimony about Jesus. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So as I was looking for a topic upon which to write, those words caught my attention, and I thought, yes, um, I can spend a, a year researching and writing, and that's not going to get old. So let me show you what I believe that phrase means. This statement may be understood as follows. The testimony about Jesus is the spirit at work in prophecy. In other words, the informing angel makes a broad statement to John regarding the energetic drive in prophecy, which reveals the person and work of Jesus the Messiah. I'm not saying that the spirit of prophecy is the Holy Spirit, although, of course, the Holy Spirit is at work in prophecy. It's his word. But, but I believe what the angel was telling John is there's this energetic force in prophecy to reveal Jesus, to reveal the coming Messiah, to reveal God's plan of redemption and judgment, to recapture God's glory, both angelic and human, as we should rightfully give it back to him. Would you also say that you talk about... Uh statement in John that even in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the testimony of Jesus there is also uh, the spirit of the work of Yes, yes. Genesis, Numbers, Deuteronomy, 1 Samuel, 
um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, not Lamentations, but Ezekiel and Daniel, the minor prophets. Yes, all the way through the scriptures so that I believe people are right uh, who have written on the theme of the Bible to say it's Jesus. Now, I think we can be maybe more specific than that. But yes, yes. I think there's an energizing force in the scriptures given by the Holy Spirit to manifest the hope of our world and the recapture of the glory of God through his own son. The whole thing. thing. Now, not every page, not every chapter, not every verse, but the whole story, the whole recorded history of man. Everything that God will do is summed up in the person of the Lord Jesus. So the objective interpretation of the two nouns. Okay, so what I'm looking at, I'm looking at the phrase, the testimony of Jesus. I'm I'm suggesting that Jesus serves as the object of that verbal idea in testimony. It's the testimony that's about Jesus. Some people look at the passage and say, uh, this is Jesus' own testimony about himself. And he he gave us testimony about himself, but I don't think that's what the angel's telling John. I think the angel is telling John, prophecy is all about Jesus. He's the object. And guess what? In Revelation 1 and verse 1, what do we read? The revelation of Jesus Christ. So this is a revelation about Jesus. That's why I'm reading the visions to you from week to week to show you how many um, significant visionary uh, passages there are in the book of Revelation just about Jesus. Now, that's not the whole that's not the whole book. Because not only is Jesus the primary person, he's the watershed person uh, upon which people live or die in terms of their relationship to God through Jesus or lack thereof. But the book of Revelation shows us what God will do through that person, through that watershed person in the end times. Okay, so Jesus is the object of the verbal concept in testimony. The same thing is true of the spirit of prophecy. Prophecy is the object of that verbal concept of spirit so that the spirit an energizing and driving force within the canonical prophecy bears testimony about Jesus. You say, well, Kent, we know that. We do, but you know, we get away from it. And scholars call it into question. Old Testament scholars call it into question. New Testament scholars call it into question. Both the angel and John were commissioned to manifest the authoritative Jesus to mankind. And that's what we have in the book of Revelation, an authoritative presentation of the person of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. And everybody is accountable to him. And so we have representative churches in chapters 2 and 3. 
Their mission, the mission of, angel, of the angel and John, was, was Jesus-centered and not for self-advancement. It wasn't for self-honor or worship. The messengers do not worship fellow messengers. That's what the angel tells John. Hey, stop that. Get up. But messengers worship the Lord God who gives the message, and they also worship the Lord Jesus who is the message. Now, uh, I've mentioned this song, and some of you know it. In fact, we sang this song in church a few weeks ago. Is he worthy? Look at the lyrics with me. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? Oh, yes, we do. Yes, we do. Exactly. Is all creation groaning? Yes, it is. Is a new creation coming? Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? Is anyone worthy? Is anyone worthy to bring the judgment? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah who conquered the grave. He's David's root and the lamb who died to ransom the slave. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy of this? He is. Yes, he is. Does the Father truly love us? He does. Does the Spirit move among us? He does. And does Jesus our Messiah hold forever those he loves? He does. Does our God intend to dwell again with us? So is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah who conquered the grave? He is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave from every people and tribe, every nation and tongue. He has made us a kingdom and priests to God. That's what Israel was supposed to be. And they failed. He's made us a kingdom and priests to God to reign with the Son. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Is he worthy of this? He is. He is. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? He is. He is worthy of this. That's Revelation. That's the book of Revelation. Amen, huh? Okay, let's talk about prophecy and prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, As we're dealing with the subject of eschatology, I'm just trying to to lay a foundation so that when we get to the capstone of prophecy, the book of Revelation, we're going to have a pretty good foundation. We're going to have our, uh, we'll have a balanced perspective on what the Lord might be doing as he wraps up prophetic literature and prophetic scripture. So the prophets of the Old Testament were God's ministers of the word during the Mosaic administration. So the prophets served as covenant keepers. They were calling Israel back to the covenant stipulations, back to covenant allegiance. They lived and they served during the Mosaic 
administration. All right? They had seen something of the glory of God and expressed in poetic form the vision of God, his kingdom, the messianic age of shalom, the work of the spirit, a new community of people, and the transformation of creation and humanity, writes Van Gemeren. The prophetic vision of God's glorious kingdom shattered, now I would probably change and put contrasted, the reality of human kingdoms and structures, but also shaped the vision of a remnant that lives in harmony with God. The prophets posited a sharp antithesis between God's kingdom and human kingdoms, divine revelation and human uh, human religion. And guess what happened? After God disciplined his people and sent them into exile, who, who acknowledged the God of heaven? Nebuchadnezzar did. Wow. So the kings of Judah wouldn't. They abandoned covenant with God, but we've got a Babylonian king recognizing God. I think God is saying, I'm protecting my fame. I'm protecting my glory here. This guy's got it right, and he's just a pagan king. He's a polytheist, but at least he recognizes me. Couldn't that also be said about the king of Nineveh? Yes, yes, who led his people in repentance. Yes. Let me ask Mm -hmm. a question. So, not jumping ahead too far, but in Daniel 2, when he revealed to Nebuchadnezzar the vision, what it meant, and he finishes with the rock that is not part from human hands, Mm. Jesus, the spirit of of prophecy, that will grow, take over the whole earth, and eliminate all human kingdoms. Wouldn't you say that at that point, if he received it, Nebuchadnezzar was a premillennialist because that eliminates both post and amillennial possibilities. They post and amillennial think the church is going to make this world better, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's not. Yeah. And that's <clears throat> it, isn't that the point of prophecy in terms of uh, everything we read in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel? Yes. Yes, God will come and do the work. And so when we talk about the new covenant and the Lord Jesus coming and setting up this millennial kingdom that fulfills the new covenant, yes, yes. I hadn't, boy, Rick, that's an interesting question. I've not ever thought of Daniel 2 in terms of millennialism. Yes. And also in scripture it says, God says, my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, Yes. So I don't know what the relationship was, but he says, you know. Several times. And and he uses pagan people to accomplish his his will. Um, The scriptures tell us that he makes even the wicked person for his day. Yes. Can I ask a quick question? Yep. This literally is a question. Okay. This is not rhetorical. No. In Luke 22, Mm -hmm. Jesus told the disciples, you will sit on thrones in the kingdom with me. Several hmm. times in Revelation, John saw those men on the thrones. Was he looking at himself? <laughs> <laughs> Was he not seeing himself sitting? I mean, talk about assurance of salvation. They were <laughs> 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 Next question. 
Wow. I would think in, in chapter 20 we've got that, don't we? Hmm. The Lord favored Israel with his revelation. They received his oracles as well as his promises, covenants, adoption to sonship, and manifestation of his glory. Religion, says Van Gemeren, is a system of belief and morality that gives human beings a sense of meaning, but as a system it is defined and developed by human beings. So he's making a contrast between religion and reconciliation with God. Religion begins and ends with man. Contrast religion with reconciliation through divine means. So as we're talking about a prophet, Christ came and he taught. As a priest, he gave his life as a guilt offering. He was resurrected and now serves as high priest between God and man. And as king, he is the son of David who will come again to reign on his forefather's throne. Let's look at some of those passages. Let's turn to John 1, the Gospel of John. This is the account of Philip and Nathaniel. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Turn to Acts 3. Twenty-two and 23. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. He's quoting Deuteronomy 18. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Let's look at some of the passages regarding uh, priest. Uh, Turn to Genesis 14. Remember, Lot had been taken captive with uh, the Sodomites. Abraham got uh, word of it, and he went to rescue his nephew and uh, was successful in doing so. Verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Chedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. We would like to have more information on Melchizedek. We don't have very much. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. 
And we get to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, and we are reminded by this Jewish writer, New Testament Jewish writer, that Jesus came as a priest not after the order of Levi, but after the order of Melchizedek. And in fact, David says the same thing in Psalm 110. You will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Um, Look at Romans 8 and 34. Let's begin at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Of course, regarding King, we have a number of Old Testament passages, but let me invite you back to Revelation and look at 11.15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. There's a great transition about to take place here. What used to be the world's kingdom, Satan's kingdom, the kingdom of man has now become the kingdom of God, the kingdom of his Christ. And that takes place during the series of the judgments, seals, trumpets, and bowls, as God brings the world back under his own active, immediate authority. Okay, let's talk about some distinguishing marks of the Hebrew prophet. Um, I took this material from Jack Lundbum, uh, Lundbum, um, the Hebrew prophets, an introduction. I'm not completely happy with everything that I've got here, but that's okay. We, We don't always agree with everything the scholars say, and some scholars know more than we know, and some scholars seem to know different things than we know. And we just need to use our discernment. And uh, as Paul and I were talking earlier, let's take it back to the scriptures. If what the scholar says agrees with the scriptures, we agree with the scholar. If what the scholar doesn't, uh, if what the scholar says does not agree with the scriptures, then we uh, break our hands with the scholar and hold on to the scriptures. Okay, so he says. Um, these six distinguishing marks set the prophet off from ordinary people on the one hand and from other professional types on the other. To cite distinguishing marks is not to imply that every prophet possessed all of them, for they did not. Not every prophet possessed the whole range of prophetic gifts, nor were gifts possessed to the same degree, much less manifested in precisely the same way. So we have a minor prophet that says, hey, I'm just a farmer. I'm a fig, you know, I'm a grower of figs. You know, um, yes, the Lord has called me to prophesy, but I'm just a farmer. And probably his gifting would be different from, say, an Isaiah, whom I believe is probably um, 
the, uh, what imagery can I use here? The showboat in God's naval parade. You could be backed up by that by the Dead Sea Scrolls. Because? It was the only Old Testament book that they had the entire manuscript. Mm. The others are portions of Old Testament books, but the Dead Sea Scroll had the entire manuscript of Isaiah. We shall discover that these distinctive marks show up also in prophets and prophetic types whom the Old Testament discredits. In other words, they mimicked some of these distinguishing marks. And we have a number of narrative uh, narratives given to us in the Old Testament, especially in, in the Kings, in, in the book of the Kings and the Chronicles, uh, that have, or even in Jeremiah, Jeremiah facing off against a false prophet. So the marks are not exclusive to Hebrew prophets ex- unless we see these marks in, in a conglomerate among them and what they say agrees with the God of heaven. Mm-hmm. To be a prophet then, number one, the first mark is to be someone who has received a divine call. Prophets had a divine call. Prophets, were they to boast, could boast only of having received a call from Yahweh God. The Hebrew word nabi, which which we translate prophet, most likely means one who is called. In Akkadian, which predates Hebrew and is a cognate language to Hebrew, nabu means to call, and a nabitu is one called by the gods. In BDB, Brown, Driver, and Briggs, which has been the standard Hebrew Old Testament or Hebrew lexicon, they translate this word as spokesman, speaker, or prophet. So a, a prophet is someone's is someone who is called. To be a prophet is to be someone who speaks the divine word. Obviously, a prophet needs have a message if he's going to say something in behalf of God. Even reluctant prophets knew that in the end they must obey the divine call. Even a pagan prophet like Balaam understood that he could only say what God told him to say. At that particular time in his life, when it, when it came uh, to dealing with the people of Israel, God said, buddy, you're gonna, you, you will only say what I tell you to say and everything else you're not going to say a thing about. And during that time, that false prophet prophesied properly and biblical truth. And in, in Numbers 23 and Numbers 24, we have biblical prophecy about the Lord Jesus, the star. Um, Jonah, a reluctant prophet, obeyed finally in the end and went to speak Yahweh's word to the people of Nineveh. Thirdly, to be a prophet is also to be someone possessed with divine vision. Prophets have vision in the broader sense, that is, they have the capacity to perceive things ordinary people cannot perceive. They see that the times are out of joint, that human life before God is far from what it should be, that judgment is forthcoming, and that after judgment, 
they are the first to anticipate Yahweh's salvation. Prophets also have a visual capacity in the sense that they receive visions and dreams. Prophets, uh, Hebrew prophets, hear the divine voice, but they don't see the divine face. Only Moses saw the divine face. Uh, but prophets would receive from God via dream or vision what they were to say to the people. Um, we have to be careful not to push the point too far. Prophets in every age make some use of the visual sense in mediating divine revelation. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel all have visions accompanying their calls. Visions convey to, uh, convey to prophets secrets that kings, other prophets, and ordinary people are not privy to. The Hebrew prophets both see and hear, says Lundbaum. Fourth, to be a prophet is sometimes to be someone able to perform mighty works. For example, Elijah and Elisha, right? We would include Moses, probably Aaron here as well. To be a prophet is also to be someone filled with the divine spirit. Oh, wow. Turn to Micah. Turn to Micah 3. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. In my ministry as a pastor, I've wanted to have this powerful voice for God. And, uh, but God didn't make me that way. He didn't give me that kind of, of character or strong voice. But I can appreciate it in other people. Look at what Micah says. Well, let, let's back up to verse 5. Micah 3, 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry, Peace, when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. Oh, you want to feed me? Wonderful. I'll pronounce a blessing upon you. God's going to be nice to you because you're feeding me. You're, uh, you're uh, supporting me. <clears throat> Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips. For there is no answer from God, but as for me, Micah says, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. And we live in a culture today that doesn't want to be reproached. And I think as Christians, we need to be careful in our attitude as we reproach our fellow Americans, uh, people in our own communities, um, and so forth. I think we need to go at it with a proper attitude and posture and, and demeanor. But God help us with his spirit so that we are able to say when we're supposed to say it to our contemporaries, like Micah. Yes, yes. Finally, to be a prophet is to be someone who prays. 
And so uh, Lundbaum makes, I think, a, a very strong case here for a prophet being a person of prayer. In the book of Jer- Jeremiah, <clears throat> what does God tell Jeremiah? A number of times he tells Jeremiah not to pray. I'm done with these people. They're out of here. As far as I'm concerned, judgment is, is ready. Don't even pray for these people, he says. And yet, um, what does Samuel say to the people in his day? Far be it from me that I would ever consider not praying for you. And, and what is Jeremiah's heart? Well, but Lord, they're your people. They're my people. Uh, I want to pray for these people. Um, the prophet was a man of prayer. Okay, I'm going to go there, 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 there. Yep, there. And I'm going to stop right there, and it's 12 o'clock. Let's, okay. yes. It doesn't the requirement have to be that a prophet's prophecy has to come true? Yes, yes. That's not on the list. Thank you, thank you. Hold that thought. Yes, um, it's a great thought. Yeah, because that's how we know a true prophet from a false prophet, right? Whether or not what he says actually comes to pass. Yes. Is that the cliffhanger? Tune in next week. <laughs> uh, I'm going to continue to talk to you about the nature of Hebrew prophecy, uh, prophecy, and we will, I'm, I'm sure we will come to that. But thank you. Great question. Father God, thank you so much for the privilege of looking at your word and for the wonder of divine revelation and divine prophecy. Thank you for, again, opening our eyes to the person of your son, who is the message, who is the person, the watershed person of history and of um, divine program. Everything rises and falls. Everyone rises and falls based on his or her relationship and trust or lack of trust in Jesus. Um, He alone is worthy to dispense judgment. And he is our hope. We pray in his name. Amen.